podcast that embraces diverse topic focus guest profile and works across age groups providing fascinating insights week after week i'm vai kumar your host and let's get on board with another interesting guest today welcome to part 2 of modern day student life parental influence and achieving a balance and we are back here with Dr. Janine Jano. Uh, welcome, Janine. Thank you. Glad to be here. And thank you for being here one more time for us to give us insights on the rest of the factors that play into the life of a modern day student. And as we all know, Dr. Uh, Janine is um, a school psychologist, mother of three, three, and she's an instructor of psychology and a student coach. She's the author of the wonderful book uh, the disintegrating students super smart and falling apart we uh, definitely have to realize what role parents play in the life of a student and we all tend to have our moments with our children and uh, so what do you think are some of the parental influences the factors um, that play in the life of a student that that are like very critical yeah so i think this is um i think it's it's really helpful to understand that what's going on with a student is enmeshed with parents there's you know so a lot of times um student clients come to me and there's a little bit of a can you fix this <laughs> fix what's going on with my kid and it's it's never that simple and i see this in my own family you know with my own children and it's almost like the previous night right when something is due the next day mm-hmm. yes and that gets to you know we love our kids we love our kids desperately and we want the best for them so all the stuff i will say going forward about parents i want to be really clear that everything we are doing is coming from a a well-intentioned place and a place of love and concern the issue becomes when fear starts to dominate because we love them so much and we worry so much about them if we start parenting from this place of fear that's where there's unintended consequences by some of the things that we do. Mhm. Um so in in the book I actually go through um several specific things that I think that we as parents tend to repeatedly do and we've been doing for again for decades kind of we're our parenting is coming from a place of what what is the expectation in our culture this achievement culture. This is driving us to have concerns about our kids academic status. So when we start to see grades going down especially in high school we start to panic about GPA and we worry about are is this ruining their chances for these colleges and then we start to parent from that place of fear. Mhm. Um so I you know all that to say you know I always tell parents when I when I talk about this kind of stuff there's that tendency to be like oh shoot that's totally me i've been doing that i wish i hadn't done that 
that's really normal. And I know this stuff. I live and breathe this stuff. And I'm making all these mistakes as of like this morning. So, <laughs> oh, trust me. I was like, every second that I read the book, I was like, is this me? And I told my husband, hey, you need to read this book too, because <laughs> I just hope it's it's just not me feeling that way. Yeah, no, we're all doing it. I think that's so important to have that perspective and not to beat ourselves up, not to feel guilty, and to understand that the fact that anybody's listening to this podcast right now or anybody who reads the book or is doing, we're doing our best and we're trying to be quote unquote good parents. So, I mean, that's all our kids really expect from us. If we can learn to be better, at some aspects of parenting, particularly when there's these things that may not have the consequence we're really hoping for in the long run, then I think that makes us rock star parents. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, we all strive to be good parents, like you said. And I think the children do uh, understand that in spite of all uh, the challenges, correct? I think so. And, And that's the goal that we want them to to see how much we we do love them, we're doing it from this place of love. Um, but the the part of the problem is, you know, when we parent from this place of fear, um, we're saying and doing things to relieve our own discomfort, to bring our anxieties down. Um, while we're while while doing that, what, what ends up happening is we're offloading those anxieties onto our kids. So we're sort of um, sacrificing their long-term growth for our short-term comfort. And I think that's a, a little bit of a hard pill to swallow, uh, you know, because I don't think that we're intending, we don't know that we're doing that. But I think it's something that we have to be more aware of when we are doing that so that we can do the hard parenting. So some of the examples I give in the book, um, and this kind of goes back to everyone gets a trophy. We we're we praise our kids a lot. You know, we, as parents, grandparents, teachers, you know, we, we tell our kids, oh my gosh, you're so smart. Oh, you did that so fast. Oh, way to get the A. Your grades are so good. You are so good. You are so fast. You're so good at the sport. And the problem is, again, um, if we praise our kid for getting an A and we say, oh my goodness, you are so smart. What does that mean if they get a B? or heaven forbid, a C or a D, if there were such a thing. Uh, so it probably starts playing into their self-esteem at that point. It absolutely does, because what we're doing is we're praising the person. We're praising the things they can't control. So what if we... And this is really tricky, because this is very automatic. And it's it sounds like a nice thing to do. Why wouldn't we tell you how pretty you are? Why wouldn't we tell you how smart you are? Those are nice things to say to somebody. But the problem is if that's not something within their control, when things, when the external world is giving them feedback that, oh, maybe you don't look so great today, or maybe you you weren't so smart on this test, what does that mean? Um, so it becomes really problematic with self-esteem issues and confidence with our kids. So the 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 tweak here is that we praise um, like effort. So I, I like the way you stuck with that. Um, oh my gosh, you were really creative in the way that you approached this or something that is in their control. If we are praising that, 
that makes a huge difference. And it's, the problem is it's incredibly hard to do because it's, it's breaking a very ingrained habit of just the easy compliment. You have yeah. to, you have so to just equate it to the effort as opposed to uh, just being very lavish and uh, just surface level, just say, keep on saying, oh, you did this wonderful. You did this in a very, very nice way. Oh, you, you look great, whatever, right? Right. And this is, this is the thing that kind of got our kids into the fixed mindset to begin with is because since they were little, little, we've been saying these kinds of things to them. And so then they self-identify, I'm a smart kid. I'm a pretty kid. I'm an athletic kid. I'm whatever I've heard all these years, that's what I am. And if they start to get feedback that starts to make them question that everything falls apart and we don't want to do that to our kids. Very true. Very true. And that's well said. Yeah. Otherwise they just, it becomes a habit and it becomes an expectation. Mm-hmm. And uh, what other factors uh, play a role as far as how we influence our children? Well, kind of coming back from, you know, when we were talking in the first part um, about the cultural influences, I mentioned um, like the Adam Walsh uh, abduction where a little boy was shopping with his mom, was abducted and murdered, and that set off a whole host of events of um, you know worrying about our kids' safety. So, and this happened in uh, a grocery store when he was shopping, and that's where he got abducted, correct? Right, in the early 80s. And his dad was John Walsh, who went on to start the show America's Most Wanted. Um, it, through him and, um, you know, the legislatures, they, they, they started crafting, you know, federal policies to protect children. Um, you know, we had all the alerts that what I think today the... Code Adam has gone to the Amber Alert, so we'll get notifications if a child's been abducted. Um, so all these things happened, and that influenced our protectiveness as parents. So all of a sudden, it, it became really foremost our job to keep our kids safe. And what that's turned into in sort of day-to-day parenting is we protect too much, um, and we're creating a very psychologically fragile and a very quote unquote, young generation of kids. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, like today's 15 year old is more like a 13 year old and today's 18 year old is more like a 15 year old. We have kids who don't want to get their driver's license. Um, we have kids that want to do more with parents in a way that's really not what we would developmentally expect. We would, instead of seeking out their peers to go to the movies with there are students who prefer to do that, you know, with their parents. So we've, we've sort of changed a little bit of how adolescents are looking and behaving because we have, by protecting too much, again, super well-intentioned, want to keep them safe. We have subtly given them the message. You probably can't handle this. Plus, uh, it also sends a message that, hey, I'm your comfort zone or we are your comfort zone. So parents, so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's that's something. And related to that is in, in all of our protecting, we tend to help more than, A, they need. Um, 
we, we tend to help when it's developmentally inappropriate for us to be helping them do something. Um, and we're helping them when they're not asking us to help. And we're, we're not allowing them to develop their own competencies in so many areas. So how better can we do as far as the protecting and the helping front? So this requires us as parents to take some serious deep breaths and um, allow our children to try and fail and to make mistakes. So, you know, I, I was, I, I think a very common thing would be something maybe in the kitchen, like, you know, loading the dishwasher, you know, that thing where you've said, will you load the dishwasher? And they say, Oh, you know, I would, I, I've got, I've got to do my homework all of a sudden because you've asked me to do this. And, you know, so we may, we may jump in there because we don't want to stress them out anymore. We may jump in there because we don't want to have the fight. Um, so we are, we are helping them. We are trying to alleviate their stress. Um, we are also maybe thinking, uh, it's just easier if I do it. I'll do it the right way. They're going to do it the wrong way. They may Oh, always, right? <laughs> yeah. The problem is, then how are they ever going to learn? I mean, I didn't, I wasn't born knowing how to, I mean, I'm a masterful dishwasher loader. No one does it like me in the family. But. <laughs> oh, then uh, the next book has to be uh, Dishwasher Handling 101. Exactly. Um but it, so I get a little peeved when I open the dishwasher and I see things. It's like, oh, really? That's how you're going to put that in there? You, that's, you know, I have my moment. But I also realize, you know what? It's not that big a deal. And let them unload the dishwasher later and see that that dish did not get clean because it was completely in the wrong spot or covered by something. It's that how are they going to learn their, those competencies if we don't give them that chance like we had the chance to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they may be busy, but they still um, have to set aside time uh, to do these things because it teaches them one uh, how they can balance time and their schedule. And uh, uh, probably, I I also look at it as you know something. It's a it's a mindful exercise. You you just do it. And you are so involved doing it and uh, hopefully not just doing it for the sake of doing it. But Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, from that standpoint, you're right. Uh, Definitely assigning responsibilities. uh, That's a good insight. And I I think you bring up a good point there when you say, you know, they're busy. Um, my, My counterpoint to them would be, yeah, I'm busy too. Um, <laughs> I think it's really, and, and I think as parents, particularly as moms, I'm, you know, I don't want to be heavy handed one side or the other, but I think particularly moms tend to kind of self-sacrifice a little bit or take on more than maybe we should to make everybody else's life and schedule and stuff go smoothly. And I did get to a point where it's like, I think I need to be a little bit more selfish here. Um, because I, I was starting to feel resentful, you know, for the kinds of things I was being asked to do. Like, can you give me some water? And it's like, I'm actually doing something in the kitchen. They're just sitting there. And it's like, I guess I could, but I really don't see why you could. You know, so that required a conversation with my children to say, look, I've got your back and I want to help you, but 
you need to step up and take responsibility for an awful lot of stuff. And I will help you where I can. And even in, in just having that conversation is sort of putting it out there that I felt taken advantage of and I was starting to feel resentful. My kids asked me to for help in a way different way after that. So they were they were much more like, hey, if you wouldn't mind or if this works for you, could you help me out with this? I would really appreciate it. Um, right down to like packing a lunch, which was their responsibility. But some days they were running late and I would just get the, oh, if you have time and you wouldn't mind, oh my gosh, you'd be saving me. And that I was like, sure, I'm happy to do that. Um, but I, I feel like sometimes we do so much and we're helping so much that there's an expectation that we always will and that they don't need to necessarily show us some gratitude for that and appreciation. Oh, yes. And it's perhaps a good distraction for them to be involved in other things as well. That way it's a, um, it's it's like a time off from whatever constantly their brain is thinking, if it's academics, if it's just a um, assignment that needs to be turned in or whatever that is. And uh, well, definitely we teach them to uh, become uh, better at managing their time just so they don't when they go out into the world later they are they are not facing something totally new absolutely and and to be able not to be surprised or blindsided when they go up to college and they can't just if we set up the situation at home you know in middle school and high school where your only responsibility is to be a student study 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 you don't have to worry about you know, taking out the garbage or mowing the lawn or, you know, juggling all these other responsibilities within the, the household, then when they go off to college, there are going to be those other kinds of things. And if they don't have any experience balancing, you know, having to go get your groceries, having to um, take care of your banking issues, you know, all the things that come up in life, if that's always been taken care of by parents, that can be really disorienting when a kid goes off and all of a sudden goes, oh my goodness, there's all this other stuff. Oh, perhaps right from doing laundry, correct? Oh, doing, I, I really want people to have their kids doing laundry by middle school. <laughs> it's like, that's like my superordinate goal of mine. <laughs> it's a great thing when you, when you as a mom, I, for years now, I've been doing only my laundry. And I'm a much happier human, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, otherwise, you know, those those pile of clothes every single time and yeah. uh, just sitting with that other than doing the hundred other things around the house. Absolutely. But it's a, that's a, that is a great, laundry is a great thing. If you're kind of starting from scratch and building this, you know, letting them start to do stuff, laundry is a perfect place to start because you do not want your college kid bringing home their laundry all the time. <laughs> That'll be extra fun. Oh, goodness. What about the helping part? Like say they tend to forget certain things, they run out to the bus, they go to school or we drop them in school. What do you, how do you take care of those kind of situations and anything else that involves helping them? So I, I that's always a tricky one because I you know, when my kids were younger, I was always at the elementary school dropping off this or that, that they forgot. And, um, at some point I went, Hmm, 
this is kind of a part-time job and they're not really learning a lesson here. And my, my youngest, who's a senior in high school, she would literally forget her head if it were not attached every day. Even if you lay out something for her or there's a sign or a note, she's, she's just one of those kids who will walk out without it anyway. So with her, I, I started this when she started high school. So it's been four years now that we've been doing this. She gets two saves a year. And so I just tell her what, you know, I will bail you out, but I'll do it twice. So save it for some big stuff. That's a, that's a very good tip. <laughs> it's a hard one to keep. And, you know, it, it's kind of based in reality though, because I'm thinking, you know, you don't want to be cold hearted and be like, no, if you forget, that's just the consequences. You won't have it because that's not really how life works. I mean, if I go out and I forget something and I call on my husband to, Hey honey, would you mind? You know, I, I really could use your help here. He's got my back if he can. And that's just what we do for family. So I think we need to be reasonable, but we, there's a difference between like, again, a big save versus, Oh, I forgot my lunch again today. It's like, okay, well you do that a lot. So you must not really you you can go without eating today. Let's let's have that natural consequence. If you find that uncomfortable, or if you have to keep asking your friends to scrounge through their lunch to get scraps, um, <laughs> they're going to start getting annoyed with you, and that that's a natural consequence. And so something is going to help you remember um, to prioritize remembering your lunch before you leave. So, have you found that it has helped? Say when you uh, incorporated that two saves a year uh, tactic and said, hey, this is what I'm going to do. This is how much I'm going to bail you out, help you. Uh, do you think that definitely brought about a change? It did. I wasn't sure it would, to be honest with you. <laughs> but it, it actually did because she, like my daughter, when she uses it, she actually acknowledges she's using it. So it's, it's not like it's went in one ear and out the other. She believes that I will not be bringing her the lunch or the coat or whatever the small thing is. Um, and so she, she really does get it. So I think you have to really mean it and you may have to, I think part of how that happened was early on, she, she asked for something and I responded back, is this, are you going to use a save for this? And then her response was, oh, no, I'm not. Never mind. Okay. So I think it, it does help them, although it's a very fine line for us parents. And we think uh, we are not being the nice, kind parents that we should be. I think it definitely helps to mold them into a better person, correct? I think so. I mean, the, the hard part is when it's a high stakes thing. So when they've left their homework or their project at home that, you know, their grade relies on, that becomes much, much harder. But again, the goal here is have them kind of suffer the consequences earlier rather than later, because you won't be there in college to bail them out at the last second if they've forgotten something that's high stakes. So, you know, we have to use our judgment in the moment, but these are all the things to kind of be factoring in. And I think it does help. And um, it does help as in, like you said, when they go to college or even uh, now with your uh, high school senior, when you do the uh, two saves method, 
I think uh, they also appreciate and they understand that, okay, mom or dad is after all not trying to be mean, uh, but they are trying to help me and they are trying to uh, teach me the right things. And I think they definitely acknowledge that and they tend to be thankful for it. I agree. I agree. We got to give them a lot more credit sometimes. Oh, yes. Yeah. We all, we all need to remind ourselves on that aspect, though. <laughs> I think I think they like that, although it doesn't have to be that uh, lavish praise. Um, I think we, it's a good reminder from you. We all need to, again, draw the fine line between the lavish praise and uh, where we need to uh, really give it to them for what they do. Absolutely. Are there any other... Uh, influences, um, any other influencing factor, say sheltering them too much um, and uh, say like a power struggle situation. Hey, I want to go to a concert. What do I do? Yeah. I mean, we definitely, I think have a tendency because again, it's part of that protecting that we do tend to shelter them. We tend to overindulge our kids. Um, we, We get kind of drawn into what they want versus what they need. And, you know, sometimes even if we can give them everything they want, which is a nice feeling, I'm all for that. Um, I think it's really important to say no sometimes to, to their wants, because again, we don't want to raise kids, um, who are overindulged in that way and have expectations. They're always going to drive the nicest car, have the nicest, the newest technology, the newest iPhone or whatever it is that, you know, to have them become accustomed to that at a young age, that sets them up. They better be really successful (laughs) Um, (laughs) kind of right out there. And, you know, a lot of times kids out of college, they still struggle, you know, because they're getting kind of the entry level jobs and things like that. So we want them to understand, we want them to understand what it feels frustrated not to get what you want in the moment. It's a good lesson to have, you know, dropped in here and there as they're living at home with us. Because ultimately we could set up a scenario where they are always tied to us financially in some way. Um, Mm -hmm. I've seen that happen and that's, that becomes really challenging. And obviously we're trying not to have that happen. Yeah. I think in some sense, they also uh, don't want to depend on us, but at the same time, unless we define the boundaries of uh, needs versus wants, I think uh, unless we teach them right, uh, it seems to get tricky. Yeah. And we have to, again, we have to tolerate the discomfort of, you know, if we've grown, if our child has grown up in a, in a lovely home, in a lovely neighborhood with all kinds of amenities and basically everything they want to see them in, um, maybe a rundown apartment in a not so awesome neighborhood off, you know, off of a college campus somewhere do, can we tolerate that? Again, that gets to protecting them, all the things um, and, and I've seen this play out in lots and lots of different ways. I've seen it like, sure, you can handle this, go for it. And the kid wants it and they're ready for it. And I've seen, oh, no, 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 we're buying a condo and we're setting you up pretty for your whole experience. So, I mean, I think we just have to weigh what we want to do in those cir- circumstances. And again, that's going to vary family to family, but I but they do, those decisions have consequences. Yeah, I think so. Um, 
definitely it it just all uh, remains to be seen personally for for us you know how we handle when our high school senior goes to college uh, but but definitely it's it, it's a challenge and uh, um, i think i'll have that conversation back with you when when we get there <laughs> so so please be there for me and uh, help me out um as a follow up to the power struggle uh, discussion that we just had so how do we as parents present a unified message uh, just so kids don't think oh i can just uh, get away with mom on this i can i can have her uh, support and uh, it just is a matter of her convincing dad and uh, uh, so if it's a no from dad how does mom learn to say the same message or give the same message and if there's something that mom tends to disagree and dad feels in favor of the child how do we just balance that wow you just asked like the messiest parenting question ever <laughs> I, i'm so used to messing with you always uh, why not janine it's just such a good question I, and i i'll just say i don't have like uh like definitive answer here i but i can talk about what is important in parenting um because what you're what you're saying is if if in an ideal world we would we would be on the same page with our parenting partner you know we would come at this child rearing thing from the same perspective we would agree on all the things and sometimes we do when they're littles and then they hit you know adolescence and one parent sees um, their adolescent child maybe as being younger or sees them as needing more responsibility. So there's all things that can start to shift in the way we parent together as our kids get older. And teenage years are, you know, and by then they figured us out. They've been watching us closely for their whole lives. So by the time they're adolescents, they're like, oh, I can totally play you, mom. Or I got you, dad. I know where you're you know, I know how to trigger you. I know, um, your vulnerabilities. I know how to push you to the edge and get what I want. So the experts in them start to play out. I mean, it's their job. (laughs) (laughs) All that does is annoying as it is. It shows they have done their job exquisitely well. And it also shows us that our superpower is in modeling what we want our kids to see and do and know because they are watching us that closely. Back in a moment with our guest on Fresh Leaf Forever. So, okay, so we get to this point where they're adolescents, um, Likely, we're not necessarily always on the same page with our parenting partner. Um, And then we are in these sometimes struggles and conflicts because one parent feels one way or one parent gives in too much. The child might be playing the parents against each other. Um, The parenting style that is, and there is decades worth of research that backs this up. The parenting style that results in the most success in a child having been raised this way is the authoritative parenting style. And it's a a style of parenting that's collaborative, but its key factor is warmth. So 
This is um, a high warmth, high structure. So there's still expectations, but there's consistency, there's structure, and there's a collaboration of at any age where it's you know developmentally appropriate, you are collaborating with the child. You're speaking to them about why you are doing something or why you want them to do something. And you're helping them talk through the consequences. So, so involve them, uh, not take it as far as like a my way or highway approach, mm-hmm. um, but um, just involve them. Is that what? Is yeah. that what one should derive from this? Right. So it's in contrast that there's three other parenting styles. There's the authoritarian, which you just described, the my way or the highway. So I'm making the rules. I'm the adult. I'm the parent. You do as I say. You know, that is not, that does not teach it. So that's a very high structure, but very low warmth. Um, and then there's the permissive parenting style. And this is like, let's be best friends. You are so cute and funny when you misbehave. You really <laughs> can do no wrong. I don't want to make you mad. I want you to like me. Um, so that's very low structure, but very high warmth. So, and then neglectful parenting style. I don't believe anybody listening to this would fall into that category. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's just not meeting the physical or emotional needs of our kids. So we can kind of put that one to the side. But this Mm -hmm. spot is this authoritative, which means we are the parents, we are in control, but we respect you, our child, as an individual. um, And we are going to collaborate with you and problem solve with you and talk through things with you. So there is an understanding of why we, you know, why we think this is an inappropriate thing that you did, but we want to talk to you. This is, this broke our rules. Here's why, here's what we're concerned about. And there needs to be a consequence. So you talk to, you talk with your child through that. Um, you talk through what could you do differently next time. So instead of focusing on, you know, you are so punished, <laughs> and I am so taking your phone, or I am so taking your car. It's you know, and there there should be some sort of consequence. But if you can allow your child to determine an appropriate consequence, in conjunction with saying what they could do differently next time, you just you just get so much more bang for your buck there because it's just a huge learning experience. And, you know, we need to think about ourselves as adults, the things that we probably learn the most from in our life are huge mistakes that we've made. Oh, most definitely. And uh, it's always, every day is a learning journey and one can only get better. And they're, they're, when, from a parenting standpoint, and this is such good news, I think, for us parents, um, the thing that is most protective to our kids, the most protective, is warmth and support. And in support, I, I include like structure. So providing like s- structure routine for our kids and showing them warmth protects them from so much and helps build resilience in our kids. And when you think about it, that's really the easiest thing for us to do. That means we need to show up for our kids, love our kids and support them and provide a, provide a framework that's developmentally appropriate for them. The problem is we get overzealous and we add in a whole bunch of stuff that we think we need to be doing again, more from that 
achievement culture kind of influencing our thinking when really what we need to do is just love our kids. So whatever you said, uh, I was going to ask you about how we build trust and confidence and uh, communicate better with the adolescents in our lives. And so it seems like this collaborative effort and the structure, if that's in place, would that help achieve the trust and confidence uh, mutually? It would go a long way to, yes. Um, And the other pieces of building that trust is um, improving our communication, particularly as our kids hit, you know, adolescence, tweens, and teen years. Um, Active listening. So really giving our kids our undivided attention, listening to what they are saying to us. Because sometimes we're listening defensively, like, wait a minute, it sounds like you're criticizing me. I need to defend myself. And so we're not really hearing what they're saying. We're just building our response back to them to protect ourselves. Um, and the other piece of that is we can we need to be listening for what they're what they're really saying to us. So they might be yelling at us and be really angry when it's, if you kind of read between the lines or listen between the lines, maybe they're very disappointed about something. Like they found out they couldn't go see somebody or do something and their disappointment is coming across as anger. But if we don't listen carefully and listen to understand, then we miss that. And then we also tend to jump in as parents and try to solve their problem. Whatever they're you know, spewing about is like, well, here's what you need to do. Or have you tried this? And what I have found is that really annoys our kids oftentimes because they just want to be heard. They just want to vent. They don't want us solving the problem for them. We are their safe sounding board. And once we uh, patiently listen to them, I know you mentioned about the 90 second rule in your book. So if we adopt that approach and listen to them patiently, then when they get settled in their mind with that, they probably would automatically come to you with uh, the solution part, would they? Yeah, so that 90-second rule is engaging with our kids when their brain is hot on emotion and they're upset, which, again, if we respond defensively, that's how we end up being in conflict with our kids, you know, and it just escalates. So nobody wins there. And the 90 seconds is when the brain becomes emotional, all sorts of you know chemicals are released in our brain so we've got cortisol and all kinds of things are happening and once that happens it takes it's it's like shaking a snow globe um it takes a little while for the glitter to settle so it takes about 90 seconds for those chemicals to wash back out um of the brain and calm down so if we keep engaging we're just shaking the, we're just shaking our snow globe and the glitter is all over the place so you know i made the point of explaining that to my children ahead of time so that if we if they were getting pretty hot at me I could say I'm not going to engage in this conversation right now I need to wait until your glitter settles so we can have a conversation and they understood what I meant um but that can be really hard and again it's one of those things it's kind of a oh that's good to know um, because that's why that would explain why every time they get mad at me, I get mad at them, and then we end up in a big blow up. Um, so that's really what's happening. So 
you know, having that level of understanding of each other when you're trying to communicate, particularly when it's emotional, is just super helpful. And would that help, uh, say, if we set an example by following that 90-second rule, uh, would that help for them to reciprocate that with you? Absolutely. And I would really, uh, you know, I would wait for that to happen. I would expect to see them, you know, not keep coming at me with, you know, their emotions that they would under, they would need to understand they need to separate and have a moment to cool down. And and my kids kind of piece that together. That's wonderful. Um, So out of the 77 tips that you mentioned in your book, that was my most favorite section. Uh, It was hard to pick favorites though, but uh, the 77 tips to be productive, that really uh, was a huge eye-opener. And uh, what, according to you, are uh, some of the most important ones out of there? Gosh, you know, there's there are so many that I find incredibly useful that I use over and over and over again with um, my clients and myself. <laughs> and I've had a lot of, you know, adult readers, you know, the parents go, oh my goodness, I'm using this one, this one, this one. Um, I, you know, I, I love the monotasking because I think, again, this is that information that a lot of people don't have and students certainly don't necessarily have that our brain only focuses on one thing at a time, like a spotlight. And so we are, we feel like we multitask. We feel like we're, you know, we can check our phone and do our homework um, and talk to our sister in the bedroom next door. We feel like we're doing all that at the same time. Wow, we are awesome and being so productive. The problem is every time we do, like if we're working on a homework project and we go check the phone or just even if it's two seconds, that two seconds, it's a shift in attention. The brain just does it incredibly quickly and seamlessly, but in shifting, we then lose ground. So every time we interrupt what we're doing that's important, which let's say it's supposedly the homework that's important, every time we take a small micro shift away, we're losing ground when we go back. So we're not creating strong memory connections. Um, We think we've covered something that we haven't. We've lost our place and we lose time. And so how I explain that to students is, and this is good for us adults too when we're working, is something that would take you a half an hour is now going to take you 45 minutes to an hour because you've lost so much time in all these little micro shifts that you've been doing. So multitasking, not really a thing. Okay. And uh, you also mentioned about uh, the reality check as far as time management and at least get something started as opposed to nothing, right? Yeah. So the brain operates in this really, I have a lot of brain hacks for students because I I always want them to understand. I'm not telling you, don't do this just because I'm telling you. I'm telling you um, how you're, how this is actually going to kind of bypass something in your brain that wants to do it a default way. Let's, let's bypass that in, in a way that helps you. And that starting something thing is opening a loop in the brain and the brain loves closure. So when we start something, it does a couple things. One, the brain starts to, so let's say it's a, a paper and no, I have not met a student who loves to start a paper <laughs> ever. <laughs> 
So I say, okay, so here's how you start a paper. You create a folder, you open a file and name it, and you type out the cover page. And that is starting your paper. And that opens the loop in the brain. And it changes your self-talk to, oh my gosh, I've got this big paper to do, which your brain hates that. It says, oh, no, thank you. That sounds horrible. Let's procrastinate. Let's play that video game. (laughs) When you have started the paper, even if it's something really, really small, your brain goes, I need to work on the paper. I need to do more on paper. You can totally say something different that your brain doesn't get all like panicked about and say, oh my goodness, let's find something way better to do real quick and distract you from this horrible paper thing. So opening a loop is is a is a really good brain hack. Oh, that's excellent. And also some of the uh, other aspects you touched upon earlier that we need to appreciate their strengths. And likewise, it's good for them to do it on their own and not just be very critical of themselves. And the one other thing that I found very interesting from your book was pick the right place to study and uh, adopt handwritten notes. And in this digital world, a lot of people, I, I see even my own kid, she tends to take notes on her laptop. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we're going to be able to do a 180 on that, you know, with, especially in our COVID times, but why it's, and there's two issues here. So it's, it's expedient to take laptop notes. Um, so students prefer that. Um, the problem is it's passive. And I talked about how passive stuff doesn't really help us very much. If you are doing handwritten notes, you have to be kind of thinking about what you're writing down as you're writing it down and trying to summarize and we get clever with abbreviations. It's a much more active process. You're engaging more senses and you are more likely to remember the information. So I tell students that is a form of studying, taking good notes by hand. Um, So some students will take laptop notes and then later rewrite them, which again, if it's just passive rewriting, not as helpful, but rewriting you know, sort of summarizing, writing in your own words um, can be really helpful. And what about the right uh, place of study? How significant is that? It's very significant because so many students, particularly again with the virtual playing such a large role, are in their beds studying, which is the worst place to study especially when we value sleep. And what I tell students, and again, this is just, why would they know this? Um, human beings learn two different ways. We have we learn through kind of reinforcement and modeling. Um, and we, we learn through observation and modeling. And we also learn in this um, involuntary, unconscious way. It's called classical conditioning. And if anybody's familiar with Pavlov's dog, that's what I'm talking about here. But basically it's our bodies. Um, understand connections between a stimulus and a response. And so, for example, if you were ever stung by a bee, your your body associates bee with pain. And so as you continue to live your life, every time you see a bee, you get scared because you're afraid of the pain that could happen. So that's a learned unconscious response that you don't really have control over. And what happens with studying in beds is there is this unconscious pairing of the bed with school. And school is paired with anxiety and stress. So when students try to go to sleep at night, 
that unconscious pairing, their body knows when they're in bed to associate it with all that negative stuff school-related. And so it may impair their ability to fall asleep, or it may impair their quality of sleep, or they may wake up in the middle of the night. And again, they would never make the connection that it's because I'm studying in bed, but it's certainly not a place. You want to associate your bed with sleeping so that when your body gets in bed, it's cued or triggered to sleep, not stress about school. Does does it work the other way as well? So initially when you start to, okay, you were so used to sitting on your desk, but you start to sit at your be- in your bed and start studying. Does the brain in that case associate bed with sleep and start to think, oh, okay, I'm, it's about time to doze off. And so does that impact how you study as well as the, so is that, other possibility does that hold good so you mean flip flipping it so that yes yes so you so the big you know the big fix here is don't study in bed anymore um and it would probably take you know several weeks to a month or so um maybe up to two months for that to fully um not be a strong association but yes definitely could be changed. And what students find is, you know, they need to be comfortable. They need to be, um, the study environment is just hugely important. Some students need background music, background noise, people around, uh, especially our introvert or extrovert kids. They actually do better in, in group situations or in the kitchen where there's people around. It actually helps them focus. Whereas the opposite is true of some of our introvert kids. They need alone time. They need quiet. Um, So it's really important to kind of understand our kids and what works best for them because it's not, there really is no one perfect fit. Like perfect quiet is, that will be horrible for some students. They really do need some sort of input. It actually helps them. It's it's the kids who tend to use fidgets and things like that to focus or doodle. It's the same kind of thing. But, you know, if we as a parent, that's not our experience. You know, I hear a lot of parents say, you know, they need to have complete silence or they need not to have their music playing. How could they possibly be concentrating? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could be. So it just really, I think we need, we owe them, um, to explore that further with them, what is working and what doesn't. And that's one of the things I do with my clients is I try to break down their, a lot of them don't even have a study environment. (laughs) So first of all, it's like, you should probably care about studying. So let's start from scratch. Where do you want to study? And and we may experiment to see, well, what is working best for you? But it's it's a real key important um, component. Okay. And um, how can you, uh, what is your best advice to someone that constantly has test anxiety and uh, we live so much in this digital world? So is there like a digital detox idea that you might suggest? I'm sure so many parents are struggling with, hey, why are you constantly on your phones? Yeah, the phone and the screens in general are just a huge issue. Um so I, I never, if I told students I wanted them to do a digital detox and just get off their things, they would never talk to me again. So I don't, I don't go there. <laughs> but I do talk to them about gaining control over their screen use. And so I call it a digital declutter. Mm-hmm. So take some things away um, for a set amount of time and then see what you miss. 
Um, and also I talk to them about different ways that they can manage. And this applies to us as adults too. You know, you can grace, you can go, um, you can gray out your phone so it's not as colorful and it doesn't engage the brain so much. Um, I mean, these, these devices are meant to suck us in and they don't, you know, they're doing things to our brain that are, it's beyond our control. So the whole addiction piece of it that we all experience to some degree is very, very hard to get control of. So I do help students um, come up with some, some ways, you know, getting it out of sight. So students think, well, I put it down on, you know, it's face down, it's, it's on silent next to me when I study. Well, research says if you can see it, your brain is still connected to it. And that's, you know, again, why would they know that? Um, so the better advice is go put it in the bathroom or downstairs in the kitchen until you've finished your ch- 20, 30 minute chunk of studying, then go down, take a break, take a look at it if your brain needs to, um, and then come back up and do another chunk of studying. So that's one of the ways I approach the digital, the screen issue with kids. And, and just to make parents feel a little bit better, there are two things that mitigate all the screen use that make it better. Um, and one is nature. So if our kids are outside in nature or anybody is, that actually um, is very protective. And the other piece is being face-to-face with other kids, which again, it can be more challenging, particularly now with um, if kids are home virtual. But, you know, so if a kid plays a sport though, or, you know, it's getting together um, with groups of kids, that actually undoes some of the negative of all that screen time. So just keep emphasizing as much as you possibly can. Yes. Okay, yeah. that's great. Um, and just very quickly on the test anxiety aspect, please. The test anxiety is all about um, our kids showing up um, and being in a stress response that's fight or flight which I go into this quite a bit in the book, but just briefly, you know, the test is not um, life-threatening, but if the brain responds that way, the brain can't think. So it's that emotional brain overpowering the thinking brain. So what I teach students is how to have, we have two other stress responses and one is called a challenge response. And this is the challenge, this is the stress response we do when we're, um, really engaged in something. So I always do that, you know, if you're standing over a three foot putt for a few million dollars and you make it, you probably were using your challenge stress response (laughs) (laughs) and you feel excited. You feel energized. You, you you know, you feel the same kind of stress. It's just how you're interpreting it. My stress is here because this is important to me and my body is trying to help me versus, um, you know, I'm, this is going to be terrible and I'm scared and I don't know what to do. Um, those are two different ways that the brain physiologically we show up and, you know, we can either perform and rise to the challenge or we, we choke when it comes to a testing situation. So embrace the challenge is the message uh, I'm hearing. And uh, so that helps you trigger a positive response and then it becomes easier and you start remembering everything or at least you don't forget anything um, whatever you have prepared for and uh, then it becomes a much easier situation is that correct 
That's correct. And it's, it really is, it's a mindset thing again. So there's a stress mindset. So I teach students how to have that challenge stress mindset when they're sitting down to take a test and understanding that stress is not a bad thing. Stress is just a signal in our brain that tells us, pay attention. This is important to you. Awesome. And last but not the least, Janine, if you can uh, give our students, parents, and all the listeners here um, as to how we handle situation of this pandemic-driven world. Well, it's fine. There's no problem. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just so easy to navigate. Oh, good gravy. Um, yeah, so I think the best advice I could give, because, I mean, we're all you know, I've used the expression a couple of times, we are the sausage being made right now. Um, we are in the very messy middle. And that is a very vulnerable, uncomfortable place to be. We don't know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, or how it's going to happen. And no one likes uncertainty. No one likes to feel out of control. And this is a collective experience right now, um, kind of unprecedented in our lives. So, um, I think it's important to recognize that. And from that, we have to adjust our expectations for this moment. Um, if our definition of success is what it was pre-COVID, we may be setting ourselves up for a lot of heartache um, and, you know, and, and a lot of re-traumatization. So I, I, I keep seeing this happening where, you know, when we started off in March and there was like, well, maybe three weeks, we'll get back to normal. Okay. We'll certainly buy Easter and okay. We'll certainly buy. And every time if we bought into those like little kind of projections that we had, every time they didn't come true, we were re-traumatized again. Um, and that's really, really hard. So I think, you know, we need structure we need routine and we need reasonable expectations right now. Virtual school for students, I would say 90 out of 10, or 90 out of 100 students are struggling mightily with it. And I'm seeing the really high achieving bright kids struggling with it. They, they want that face to face. Um, so you know, the majority of our kids. So if you look at it that way, if your kid is normally high achieving and they're struggling right now, keep, keep some perspective that it's not just them. And there's probably not a quick fix to this. Um, the kids are, who are, who I know going back face to face, there's the problem with the face to face is it's not typical face to face. It's not as immersed in that socialization and that stuff that they love about being with their friends is, is still missing. And there's a lot of inconsistency in the face-to-face -face with closures, um, kind of going back and forth between this virtual and face-to-face -face world. And I'm finding students struggling with that more than the students who are on full-time virtual um, because it's, it's, there's that consistency built in as much as they don't like the virtual, at least they know what to expect and it gets that consistency and routine. So I think that's kind of where we are right now. I'm super concerned about the well-being um, and the mental health of our families in general. And, you know, how I'm approaching that is trying to reframe in a positive way as much of what's happening 
day to day as I can. Oh, that was precisely what I was going to um, ask you. So amidst all the challenges that you highlighted and that everyone is facing, how we strike that balance, right? So it's another aspect now of the modern day student life and uh, how parents, students, and everybody around the whole support system, the teachers uh, or counselors like you, um, how best we can drive home the positive message. And uh, just like you touched upon, say if we tell our brain to kind of rise up to the challenge or in this case embrace what's ahead of us or what's in front of us um, could that possibly make it easier I, I i think it makes it more tolerable because anyway i'm not talking about like you know put a positive spin on it there is no positive spin you know, <laughs> there, it, this is not a positive thing um but there are some positive um or worthwhile benefits coming. So for example, when this first started happening, I heard a lot of my clients and my own kids were, um, so they weren't seeing their friends because of, you know, we were all in quarantine, but all of a sudden they were connecting with kids who moved away and, you know, camp friends. And they, there was, and I, I did this too. All of a sudden my high school friends kind of reached out and we all got together on this big zoom call, which we never would have done. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about where it's like, you know, this is, it is what it is, but we're, we're taking some positive stuff from it and it hopefully we're we are you know i talked at the very beginning about this the achievement culture got us here this is our chance i mean we're seeing everything laid out pretty bare right now in our in our educational system and even in our families this is our chance to make those adjustments um, we need to show up as our best parenting selves for our kids. We need our, to show up as our best selves in our families right now. And I think we can do that, but it's, it's, it's going to be hard and it's going to be effortful and it's going to be super messy. Well, I think uh, certainly uh, useful insights, uh, but I'm just going to highly recommend that everybody read your book, Again, it's Dr. Janine Geno uh, in conversation with us. And the book title is The Disintegrating Student, Super Smart and Falling Apart. Um, is that av available on Amazon, Janine? It is. It is available on Amazon. And um, you can get lots of information on my website, which is janinegenot.com. And uh, you know, I have a monthly newsletter. So I, I love it when people connect. Oh, absolutely. And uh, again, uh, the 77 tips to be productive, possibly when parents, students, anyone that reads it, I think that, that can also help people during this pandemic. Uh, and uh, definitely it helps to navigate slightly better, if not easy altogether, I think at least it definitely helps to navigate in a in a better uh, fashion. And so thank you so much. And I'll make sure to put your contact information on the show notes as well. So that's uh, www.janinegeno.com. That's her website. And she's on Instagram as well. And all her media connections and her... Uh, 
uh, her coaching, everything, you can just connect with her through her website. I strongly encourage everyone to subscribe to Dr. Janine Jenner's newsletter as well. Uh, thank you so much, Janine. And uh, I know we went over in terms of whatever I had promised listeners in terms of episode length, but I certainly didn't want to skim through information because this was just fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vi. I really appreciate the opportunity to have the conversation. Absolutely. We welcome you back again uh, in the future. Thank you. Thank you.